whenever I'm lost and I'm like, how should I begin? I go back to this rule of what's the universal statement. And it can be a universal question, but it's sort of like, what's the foundational thing I could say at the top that tells us right away what this whole thing is about? Welcome to Telling Stories. Each episode, we speak to a storyteller we admire, and they challenge us and you to explore an aspect of storytelling we perhaps hadn't considered before. I am somebody who is desperate to be known, desperate to say everything, to say in correct words what the fuck is actually going on here. There's this thing that I think I want, which is to be a mother, to have a kid. And I'm in my late 30s, so it feels like it's now or never. Your eggs are at the normal level of decline for a woman your age. That's a relief. Or, let me say, slightly more declined. Well, which is it? Normal level or slightly more declined? Normal to slightly more declined. What? This episode, we speak with Sharon Mashihi, creator of Man Who Bam and Appearances. If you haven't listened to them, you really should. And we started by asking Sharon what made her fall in love with storytelling. My father used to speak to me in French, so he used to tell me the story of Patricia. And I would just like always beg, like, can you tell me Patricia? Can you tell me Patricia? And... As I remember it now, it's actually an extremely short morality tale about listening to your parents, but I like loved hearing it. I guess that was probably an early sign that I that I loved hearing stories. And what what kind of makes a good story? There was an ad that came up for a masterclass by Margaret Atwood. I've never been to any of those masterclasses, but I always love the ads for them. And she said one thing that has... Uh, stayed with me that I think is the key ingredient, which is holding your audience's attention. And I think that's kind of all it takes. Probably that was an ingredient that was there in the story that my dad used to tell me too, which is just you want to you want to hear it, you want and you do, and you don't want to stop. It it's holding you. There's a few things that I think. As an adult now, I need to believe, particularly if we're talking about radio, I need to believe that the person who's talking to me cares about what they're talking to me about. And I guess to some extent, I need to believe that just just that they put effort into it you know what I mean like sometimes I'll be listening to something and I'll be like you didn't put any effort into putting care into crafting this you didn't think anyone was going to show up I, I often think of storytelling as like hospitality I'm like there's no hospitality here you know I'm still standing here with my coat on and I'm thirsty yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly I'm still standing here with my coat on and I'm thirsty that yeah so what are the kind of elements that that show that somebody has put care into I suppose is it just is it are you thinking more in the writing of the tale in the construction of it or is it you know what are the bits that make you really feel loved by a story when you're listening I feel like there's a lot of positive activism happening in our industry around not catering so much to the audience's pleasure and so I, I'm, I'm digesting that conversation and I agree with it. 
And on the other hand, I come from a a tradition of storytelling where I was taught that you need to give the audience a surprise every 15 seconds. And I aim for that. If you're thinking about indoor rock climbing, which is not something that I do, but this, this image is coming to mind of like, you're grabbing onto this thing and then you're grabbing onto this thing and you're grabbing onto this thing. And I want all of these opportunities for the listener to grab, but I'm also mindful that there's a very important conversation happening around stories are being told a certain way because we are taught to provide pleasure and pleasure and pleasure and pleasure. And sometimes that pleasure comes at the expense of uh, complicated truths. So I don't really, and I don't like, I don't have an articulated response about how to sort of manage both of those things at once. But I guess I think both are true, that we need to be careful about catering too much, but that I also kind of live to delight and delight and delight and and surprise and shock and twist and like subvert expectation. That's all part of, those are all elements of the craft that I enjoy. The two things I've made that have had like the strongest audience response have been Man Khubam and appearances. And those were also like the two things that I, the two pieces that I've worked the hardest on and sort of put my, the most of myself into. Where I start is always just like the easiest. I start at the easiest place. So like Man Khubam, I was like, the start was there's this phenomenon of this pop Iranian psychologist. And this is so interesting to me because all of my growing up, all the Iranians I knew were extremely anti-therapy. I start with a premise. And with appearances, I started with the premise of an Iranian-American family where appearances are really important and the daughter is sort of like a liability to the family's reputation. As the wedding goes on in the ballroom, I am sitting backstage in the bridal room, staring at my face in the mirror. Melanie, what are you doing back here? This is our party. We are the hosts. You need to be out there greeting people. Mom, I don't like the way my face looks. What do you mean? I have never seen you this beautiful. Mom, that offends me. There is a centimeter of makeup caked on my face. I don't look anything like myself. Etefaren, this is you. I wish you could always look this beautiful. Beautiful enough to find a husband tonight. All eyes are upon us. Oh, hey, Dad. Babajan, my cousin, she just told me she has a hostagard for you. He is 46, lives with his mom. I think you should give him a chance. You never know. But, Dad, I have a boyfriend. I am talking about a husband. Somebody viable, Baba. Come on, don't make that face. Don't make sad, sad face. You look very beautiful tonight. Very unconventional. Is it so bad that they want to see me married? They want to know that I will be taken care of. But from my point of view, I am taken care of. I take care of myself. I like having my mattress on the floor. It's grounding. I would have my mattress on the floor even if I was a billionaire. You know what? Find a husband tonight and you can put your mattress wherever you want. Next year with your husband. Inshallah. Of course, 
Being at this wedding confronted yet again with my parents' obsession with my getting married, I can't help but think about their marriage. And frankly, if their marriage has anything to do with the reason that I'm not married. I find that there are hit of my stomach things that keep coming to the surface. And in both of these stories, because they were personal stories, pit of my stomach happened often. And like every time there's a pit of my stomach, I'll kind of like furiously try and write about what's what's in the pit of my stomach here. And that's how I get deeper and deeper into the thing and figure out what it's really about. Sometimes I'll get lucky and there will be sort of like these in my furious writing or furious thinking, and uh, there will be like a crystallized sentence. And that sentence can sort of come to ho have a very important place in the piece. Like in Man Khubam, it was, my mother does not want me to make this radio story. She doesn't want anyone to hear her voice or to judge her for her accent. Just for the record, who are you? And like it was, I had been working on it for a while. I had gathered all the tape. I was making it, but I was just like, what's at the pit of my stomach? Like what's, ugh? and it was that line. As soon as I had it, I was like the whole th thing sort of like fell into place. I used to study Alexander technique, which is sort of like a body awareness technique. If you're having pain, it's, it's one way of, of healing it. My teacher used to take a skeleton because the, the idea of Alexander Technique is that once you, the top of your the very top of your spine is located the right way, the rest of your skeleton will sort of fall into place. The head is extremely heavy. It weighs between 12 and 15 pounds worth of weight. That heavy, heavy head sits at the end of the smallest, most vulnerable part of the spine. The spine actually acts as a unit. So whatever the head is doing is going to affect the whole. And so she had this miniature skeleton and she would be like, see, when I do, and like it's, it has to do with the positioning of your head. Once I position the head, everything else falls, right? And I kind of feel that way with that, like in that piece, it was that one line and then everything was just like. And with appearances, I think appearances is a much is a much more complex story. But I do think that, you know, after a year and a half of working on it, when I finally wrote that like address to the listener at the very beginning of the show, it sort of contextualized the whole thing. And there and there was the top of its head, and it all fell into place. I contextualized for the listener that I am a, a human being who's struggling with the decision to have a child. And so much of this show is me working that out vis-a-vis -vis understanding the family that I come from. And I'm like, oh, that explains it. <laughs> and suddenly, because I explained it, like the show had a reason to exist. I am just like you. My greatest dream in the world is to have a family, to have a kid. Okay, find a husband and then we talk. A husband. A husband. How about it's time for the queen to get a foot rub? I've been on again, off again with Ponch for four years now. I have a push-pull thing. He calls it cruelty, and maybe it is. 
It could be that I just struggle to make decisions. Okay, uh, even we stay together and have a baby, odd, I walk away. Nobody cares about me or gives me enough. I'm alone, I'm alone. I'm starving. I always get hungry when I see you because I feel a deep emptiness within me. <laughs> Bravo. That's true. <laughs> Touche. Well, that's what the... Maybe I'll have a banana. You want a, a banana? A banana sounds good. Yeah. Okay. You want some peanut butter or Nutella for no, it? No, it's perfect. Oh my god, Nutella? Yeah. But what about the fact that you don't have any money? Money never stopped anybody. I mean, it's obviously stopped some people, but um, historically in humankind, Money has not been an impediment since, you know, except since mid-century, mid-20th century America. You make a baby, you have a baby, and generally, you your life adjusts in a way to facilitate that baby having a life. But I'm scared that we're just going to end up back together and I'm going to spend my entire life in this, like, awful game that you and I play and and this time it'll be way worse because there's going to be a, another helpless little being involved yes that's true well do you resent me though sure of course I love that with um man who bam particularly and excuse excuse me my farsi's rubbish so I'm gonna mispronounce that <laughs> but with that particularly it was just so honest I mean coming back to that point about your mother not wanting you to make that program uh, you know when I was listening to it it was the part especially where you were saying to her you know I want to be close to you and she was saying well you can't it was just so I was I wanted to cry do you know what I mean and how do you find when you're making how do you find making pieces about yourself that are that honest and I guess that exposing in a way is that, an, like, is that a difficult process? On the one hand, it is, and on the one hand, it isn't. I... I am somebody who is desperate to be known, desperate to say everything, and desperate to accurately articulate my experience. Like, I'm in a lifelong struggle with myself to say in correct words what the fuck is actually going on here. And, like, it's very powerful in me. It's, like, the driving force of my life. Exposing myself or, or telling an honest story, it feels like I'm doing exactly what I'm driven to do. But it is much more complicated, and I talk about this in both Man Khubam and Appearances. I struggle with... The fact that the last few years I've devoted to telling stories that are, are about my family and I come from an extremely private family. And so th the struggle is in feeling that I'm exposing other people and am I fair in my assessments of them and am I like in a sense committing a crime because I know that they don't want to be exposed. I struggle with the ethics of it. I struggle with dragging other people into it. I struggle with hurting other people. But for myself, I really want to be exposed. I, I like really want to name it all.
After I pull out the vial, I let it defrost for 15 minutes. In the meantime, I set up my sanctuary for conception. Two pillows against the wall with a mirror and a plant beside me for good luck. Before I lay down, I pee one last time as if I'm about to go on a big trip, which I am. Then, to get myself in the mood, I put on some fam. Feminist ambient music. I lay down and I grab my syringe. First, I put something called pre-seed inside myself. It's a special kind of lube that helps the sperm travel up to your cervix. I rub my clit, just a tiny bit. Being turned on is supposed to make your body more receptive to the sperm. I pick up the vial and put it in my armpit for five minutes to heat the sperm a bit more. Then I fill the syringe with the sperm and slowly put the syringe into my body. I can feel my heart beating in my chest. At this point, all I have to do is plunge. In one motion, excrete the sperm from its final plastic vessel into me, a warm human body. But first, I must bring myself to orgasm plunging the sperm at the exact moment of coming. But I am not turned on in the least. There is zero chance I am going to come. I pull the syringe, still full of sperm, out of myself. I let my legs drop to the floor, and I disassemble my stupid sanctuary. I'm over this fucking shit. All I can think about is my loneliness, and how this extremely unglamorous moment of me with two pillows under my butt, my legs up against the wall, is a preview of the next 18 years to follow. Leading on from that, I'm just wondering about the connection between this spiritual place and stories, and whether that's something you feel or think about when you're writing or making it is something i feel and think about i actually i i'm starting to put the pieces together for season two of appearances and i'm spending a lot of time going into joseph campbell stuff i was watching the first episode of the power of myth yesterday where he says mythology is how we manifest a spiritual life Every religion does that. Like we, the telling of the story, we tell stories to m sort of meet our spiritual selves. Well, the ego can't reflect upon itself unless it has a mirror against which to read itself. And that mirror would be the mythological schedule that lets it know where it is. And the ego sees itself in that reflex and knows where it is on the, on the, on the scoreboard. That, that is, for him, the definition of spirituality. And, and a ritual, he says, is like sort of a lived story. It's when you're like li living inside a small little plot that you've created for yourself, again, to get closer to spiritual, spiritual life. So that's one way of 
thinking of it as spiritual. But then I think the other way is is what I was talking about sort of with Joseph Campbell, which is the idea that the story, the storytelling itself is a spiritual act and a spiritual offering. And when we engage with stories, we are potentially meeting our spiritual selves. Well, our listeners won't know this, but on the background behind you, you've got gazillions of like beautifully ordered post-it notes. How do you structure things as well? So what's behind me is a first pass at an outline for season two of appearances. And some of figuring out that outline is a matter of like being in in a state of flow. I worked on this outline for a bunch of days in the time immediately after my morning meditation. So like I try to be like clear headed. What does the show need? Make an outline. And I think so that I do try and be somewhat in a state of flow, but I'm also like strategizing all the time. I'm like retelling myself different rules of storytelling. Like whenever I'm stuck, what should happen next? I'm like, okay, well, let me borrow these rules of storytelling that I know. I often use Robert McKee, who's a screenwriting teacher. I I often use his rules of storytelling. In a nutshell, establish the world of the character, what's normal for this character, and then create an inciting incident, what happens to throw this character off balance and to to make in this character a quest to, to figure something else out or to get a goal or something and then create for this character different attempts of them trying to meet this goal or answer this question, set them up to fail a few times and like that's their journey is like the quest, the fail, the quest, the fail. I'll often return to that and be like, okay, wait, do I have my inciting incident? Do I have the thing that happened? Okay, what are the steps of this quest? How is the first action they take different from the second action? What are they learning along the way? So I'm, I am asking myself these questions. And then I'm also simultaneously like trying to feel for my gut and like furiously writing what's in my gut. If you are pregnant, it is not a joke. You cannot go to a clinic. I will call my gynecologist. She can recommend someone. You don't have to. I know I don't. I should leave you alone so you can deal with the consequences. You can do that. I don't care. Never mind. Get out of the car. But you just said... I changed my mind. I am upset. Mom. Why does it have to be this way? Why can't you just hug me like a normal mom... And tell me that it's all going to be okay. Something that my editor, Caitlin, said she heard in a talk somewhere, but that's really been helpful to me, which is that she says that creating and editing is like having your foot on the gas and the brake at the same time. And like, you can't do that. And so I try and differentiate between when am I generating content and when am I evaluating and structuring that content for sort of like maximum effect. I certainly can't do both those things at the same time. And I felt very liberated when I understood that because I used to be constantly interrupting my own flow because I would start to get into flow and then I'd be evaluating, wait, is this the right thing? How does this fit with? And like now I just try and be like, okay, it's it's making time, not analyzing time. Do not let the anal- analysis sort of get in the way of the making. Do you ever <laughs> not worry, Sharon, but you know, we have set phrases and set constructions that mean certain things. And, and today, for example, I was thinking about 
I miss you and I love you and how they mean so many different things to people that almost to me now they're kind of redundant and I, I wondered you ever kind of find yourself slipping into things where you're only slipping into it because it's a story arc or, or a, a bit of language that you're used to you know like we can say that I love you means so many things to so many different people but there's like at the very end of appearances which is like this long journey about like a family a family in conflict you hear the mom say I love you I love you I was like yeah (laughs) you know um and I and I and I remember Caitlin advocating for me to do that like I just need to hear her say I love you I just want her and uh and sure you know we've heard I love you a million times before but there's there's nothing like a, and I love you that you've been waiting 10 episodes to hear. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like I think I, I use the fact that like we all know I love you and we all know what it's like to like not hear I love you for so long and then to hear like uh, I'm like I feel lucky that me and the audience are all on the same page about that, that we all know the impact of hearing a parent who has not said I love you finally say I love you. And do you find, I'm, I'm thinking now about a piece you made, Love Harry, and how that kind of starts with a question, you know, have you, I can't remember what the exact question was, but it's basically, have you ever thought that you might be in love with your best friend? Something along those lines. Uh, is it important to ask those questions, those kind of relatable questions in work, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, I... Speaking of, of like traditional structures, when I was growing up and going to school um, in like middle school, they taught us that every essay you write should start with a universal statement. And I was just like, okay, I'm going to follow that rule for the rest of my life. And, <laughs> uh, and I sort of do you know I I remember that have you ever question I think that have you ever in that case was like have you ever lied beside your friend in a bed and wonder if their your hands were touching on purpose and I remember I don't I can't tell if I'm fabricating this memory because it's so long ago now but I can remember I made that piece with Caitlin and um and to be frank she did most of the heavy lifting on that but but I do remember us having a conversation about like wanting there to be a universal statement or a universal question at the top. So yes, and and it was and landing on that was very important. I think about that all whenever I'm lost and I'm like how should I begin? I I I go back to this rule of what's the universal statement and it can be a universal question, but it's sort of like what's the foundational thing I could say at the top that tells us right away what this whole thing is about. Have you ever had a friend you thought you might be in love with? Have you ever slept beside this person in a bed and wondered if their hand was grazing yours on purpose? What's stopping you? Just the very, very last thing then is that um, 
you know, we are hoping to become better at telling stories ourselves and we want our listeners to come along and become better at telling stories as well. So everybody that's coming on, we're asking if they can set us a little challenge that will set our, like stretch our storytelling skills and um, make us think about an element of storytelling that you use or you, you particularly admire. Can you think of a challenge that you might set for us? Yeah, I mean, I think my challenge would be what is the thing about your own humanity that most horrifies you, that you're most ashamed of? I'm not saying you have to confess that in a radio story, but like really ask yourself, like what is a a charged thing that you never shine the light on? I always have to remind myself that it's if it's happening to me, it's happening to people. If it, if it's if it's in with in my humanity, it's within humanity. And I guess I wonder about like digging in, into yourself, doing some writing, identifying that and wonder and and asking the question, is there space in the next thing I work on? And again, not necessarily confessing it about yourself, but to interrogate that a- aspect of being a person. That was Sharon Mashihi, and I was hanging on to her every word in this interview. I think that for me, one of the main takeaways was that it's so important to invest the time into finding that first line of your story because it will affect everything that follows. Yeah, exactly. And, and taking the time as well to work out what's at the heart of the story. The nice news today is we've received a challenge from one of our listeners, Hayley Choi in Toronto, and this is her meeting those uncomfortable feelings of shame for herself. Hey, it's me again. Uh, what have I done for the day? Mm, heard my parents talking about me the other day, saying that they don't know what to tell their friends about what I'm doing. Had a nice conversation with the wall. They don't want to tell them that I'm not doing anything. I've just been staring out at the window for the last couple of hours. So, okay, so my mom keeps talking about her friend's daughter who's a dentist and apparently making over a hundred thousand dollars. What, what do you want me to do with that information? What am I, what, like, what, what am I supposed to do with that? So there's a squirrel that's staring at me right now. And I think this is the longest eye contact I've had with anything for a long time. Oh, no, oh no, no. Don't go, don't go. Oh, well, that was it. Mm, Must have heard something, because just scurried away. I guess I can just wait for the next world to, to appear, right? Um, Emily, how did you find the challenge? So basically I chose, I've been scrolling a lot on social media, um, which I do not recommend, do something worthwhile <laughs> with your life. But I saw these posts full of confidence and people just trying to spread joy and happiness. And these vile comments that 
trolls would just relentlessly shove all of this nastiness, this glee at making someone feel miserable and fat shaming and all these horrible things. So I was really interested in trying to explore those two themes in the same space. Getting ready for brunch with my family. Image description. Abby is standing in her bedroom in front of a mirror with one arm raised with a thumbs up. She is smiling and looks gloriously happy. I would have you on my knees choking on until you beg for forgiveness for being so fat. Colored walls are everything. Image description. Allie is standing looking to her left with a big smile on her face. She is wearing a shovelless white dress and sunglasses. You are disgusting. No one will ever love you. 30th birthday. Thank you everyone for making me feel so special. Image description. Rachel is standing by a big red velvet cake cutting into it. She is laughing and looking at the camera. <laughs> Good God, fat girl, shit. This ugly bitch look, look like a damn barrel. You are revolting. Unlovable. So the thing I loved about this challenge was that it wasn't easy and it really made you mm. go into yourself and... I think that that is what Sharon seems to be saying in this interview. You know, telling stories takes time and energy. You have to put care into it. Take your listeners' coat, let them sit down and give them something to drink. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Telling Stories. Uh, we were speaking with Sharon Mashihi. And as always, please send us your challenges to tellingstoriespod at gmail.com. And if you have any feedback, thoughts, suggestions, you can also reach us there. Thanks for listening.